Well, good morning, folks. How are we doing? Good. Good. You get better. Good morning. Okay. Glad you're all. Why don't you grab your Bible? If you don't have your own, there should be plenty of Bibles scattered in the pew backs in front of you. And uh, let's begin in the book of Genesis. So easy to find, first book in the Bible. And uh, if you will, turn to Genesis chapter 50 as we continue in our summer sermon series, Ask the Pastor, week 11, and the good questions just keep on rolling in. So we will begin in Genesis chapter 50. If you then want to maybe put your finger in the book of Isaiah... Isaiah chapter 10 is where we will turn next. And then you can uh, look forward to being in the book of Acts. So those are the main passages we'll be looking at this morning. Genesis 50, Isaiah chapter 10, and then the book of Acts chapter 2 and and chapter 4 as we tackle yet another really good question. So if you will, trust that you're there in your Bible. Let's pray and then we'll dive in. Father, it is a privilege for us to be here. We are so grateful that we can sit in this place and that we can freely sing songs of joy and worship to you, exalting you as our Savior and our King and our God. And Father, we are grateful for your incredible love for us that you've demonstrated on the cross of Christ, that he came down to earth uh, humbly, uh, becoming uh, a human being without forfeiting any of his divinity, but that he humbled himself and became one of us so that he could save us, so that he could live the life of perfect obedience, God, that you require for us to be in your heaven. And we could never do, but he lived that perfect life in our place, fully obedient to you, completely fulfilling the law. And he not only did that, but in great humility and submission. Jesus, we are grateful that you hung on the cross for our sins, that you freely chose it, and yet it was the will of your Father for eternity past that it would happen. And we're so grateful, Jesus, that you are no longer in the, in the tomb, that you are uh, alive, and that you are well, and that you uh, spent time on this earth, and that now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, awaiting His Word to return to this earth, to raise both the living and the dead, and to judge all men, usher in a new heavens and a new earth. And that is indeed our hope. Father, we pray in particular now as we turn to a question that has perplexed uh, followers oh, for, for decades and millennia even. We pray that you would give us wisdom and insight and a faith to trust in your Word, even when we fully can't comprehend it or understand it, we pray in the name of Jesus and God's people said, Amen. Well, the story is told of a a Sunday school teacher, and she was teaching her classroom full of children about God's creation. And she said, Now, children, I've got a question for you. Who, uh, how how many of you, who, who can tell me what makes the flower spring up from the seed. And of course, hands went up and the teacher chose one little girl and the little girl said, I know the answer. God does it. God does it. And of course, the teacher said, that's right. And then after a moment's thought, the little girl added, but adding fertilizer really helps. You know, as simple as that answer is, it is actually, that little girl's response, um, very similar to the answer to our question today. And so here's today's question. You should see it on the screen behind me. Here it is. It's a toughie. How do we reconcile verses about free will with verses about predestination? Now, the way that this question sort of historically has been phrased goes something like this. The question here, particularly about sort of free will and destination, 
Predestination is sort of in the category of, of a person's salvation. But, but we can sort of broaden the question, and I think it's fair for us to do that. So the, the question goes something like this. What is the relationship between God's sovereignty and our responsibility? What is the relationship between the fact that God, according to the scriptures, is absolutely in control over every aspect of his creation and the truth that human beings both act freely and that we are held responsible, we are held accountable for our actions and decisions? How can we reconcile these two Truce. Well, the question, as I have said just before, has intrigued and stumped, if you will, Christians for many, many ages. In fact, in his wonderful book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, the great Christian writer and author J.I. Packer says this. He says, the fact that God, and I quote, orders and controls all things, human actions among them, yet holds every man responsible for the choices he makes. He says, to our finite minds, this is inexplicable. This is inexplicable. So apparently, I'm not the only person who struggles with this question. If J.I. Packer can struggle with this question and say it is inexplicable, then I don't feel that bad answering the question and saying, I don't know exactly how to reconcile these two truths. But what about some other well-known pastors and authors? I want to show you a couple quick videos of two well-known and, in my humble opinion, very trusted Christian thinkers and pastors, and how they responded to this question that has been posed to me. And then I will proceed to give my answer. The first is uh, Pastor John Piper, and the second is Pastor John MacArthur. So let's watch this. The first way you ask the question, is it uh, an antinomy or a contradiction or humanly inexplicable how God can be absolutely sovereign over all human decisions and those decisions still be responsible, accountable decisions. I think that is uh, the one for me anyway for which I don't have an, an ultimate answer. Well, I don't know the answer to that. And I've never met anybody that knows the answer to that. So... Um, you know, sooner or later, we always come to this question, and, 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 th- and that's normal. I think every, every Christian has come to that question. Uh, there is no question that the Bible teaches that God is absolutely sovereign. Uh, there is no question that God chooses who will be saved, and He chose that before the foundation of the world and wrote their names down. There is no question that the sinner is blind and dead and unable and unwilling to believe and repent, and can only do what God asks him to do if God gives him life and changes his heart. That's what the Bible teaches. It also teaches that the sinner is responsible, and that if he perishes, he perishes because of his own hard-hearted, rebellious unbelief. Jesus even says, you're going to die in your sins because you don't believe in me. And Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem, right? How often I would have gathered you, but you would not. 
So on the one hand, the Bible teaches the sovereignty of God in salvation at every point. And on the other hand, the responsibility of the sinner at every point. So you have to believe both of those. The fact that they are apparently paradoxical doesn't change the fact that you must believe them. And you can't, you, you can't in some simplistic way tamper with either of those. So we are left with an inability in our minds to put those two together logically. But what is a problem to us is not a problem to God. His mind is so much more vast than ours. All right. So, if First and Second John, John Piper and John MacArthur have no ultimate answer, what do you think I'm going to tell you? <laughs> well, here I think is the short answer. The short answer then to the question posed today is this. I don't know if we can reconcile these two truths in this life. I'm not sure if we can really fully understand how these two things both are true. However, we're going to take a page out of the playbook of John MacArthur because um, what is our authority as Christians? Our authority as Christians is the book that you have sitting in your lap. And so the question really then becomes, does the Bible teach that God is absolutely sovereign? And does the Bible teach that humankind is absolutely responsible? And if so, then we must must believe both, and we must live out both truths. So here's what I'd like to do for our sermon today, sort of three major movements. First of all, I'd like to show you how the Bible affirms, as John MacArthur just uh, proposed, both are true. Both of these things are true from the Scriptures. In fact, we see that both of these truths are affirmed often simultaneously, even in the same verse. So we're going to see three examples of that. Second, I want us to maybe, I want to take a stab at maybe why it's hard for us to grapple with this, why why it's hard for us to reconcile this, to to put these two things together in our mind. How can we affirm that both be true and yet they not contradict? Why is that? Well, I'll take a stab at answering that question. And then number three, I want to think about some practical uh, um, applications. What does it matter that we both live out and affirm that God is sovereign and that we are responsible? And so we'll flesh out some applications. So let's begin by looking at the text, right? Biblical evidence for God's sovereignty and our responsibility. In fact, what we see Time and time again, if you, if you look for it, if you read the scripture with a mind to see these two truths at play, often in the same passage, often even in the same verse, you'll notice that the Bible uh, overtly mentions or sometimes, oftentimes, implicitly assumes that both God is in control and we are sovereign. This view that these two ideas are both true, simultaneous, and are not in any way contrary to one another is a view called compatibilism. So if you want your 25-cent word, there it is today, compatibilism. So let's take a look at some scriptures. I could give you many examples. I had trouble narrowing it down to three, but for time's sake, I want us to look at maybe some of uh, three of maybe the most often mentioned examples of compatibilism. And the first is found in the life of a man 
named Joseph. So, Bibles, Genesis chapter, chapter 50, we'll focus in on verses 19 through 20. Most of you know the story of Joseph. I'll just summarize it for you. He is sold into slavery by, by his brothers, right? Then he is wrongly accused and imprisoned by his master. He eventually, of course, get, of course gets his break. He interprets Joseph, uh, Pharaoh's dream, and he gets promoted to essentially second in command over the whole Egyptian uh, uh, nation, if you will. And so eventually, as the story goes on, there's a famine. And his brothers come to Egypt because they know that there is food. And they encounter their brother that they had wronged and sold into slavery, though they didn't realize it was him. And the story of their reconciliation sort of crescendos in uh, verse 20, if you will. So let's, let's focus in on verse 20. Joseph, when he reveals himself to his brothers, he says this of his brother's wrongful, sinful actions against him. In verse 20, he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So let me ask you a question. Does Joseph hold his brothers accountable for their evil actions? What is the answer? Yes, Yes, he does. Does he affirm that God was actually sovereign in in his brothers' actions in a way that would ultimately lead to good, to to provision and to the preservation of the family? What's the answer? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Does the scripture seem to indicate that there is any contradiction here? No. It just states it as it is. God was in control over the wicked actions of Joseph's brothers, and yet they were completely acting freely and ultimately held responsible. So we see God's sovereignty, and we see man's responsibility at the same time in the very same verse. Joseph. Let's take a look at Isaiah. So if you have your Bibles open, turn more towards the middle of your Bible. You'll eventually hit the book of Psalms. And when you do, keep going because you will hit the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 10 is where we're going to focus. Isaiah chapter 10. Here is another classic text of compatibilism, God's sovereignty and human responsibility, both at work. This is a fascinating text, and it it is um, about the nation and the king of Assyria. So in Isaiah chapter 10, let me sort of just set the scene. Here we see that God, through Isaiah, is speaking of how he would judge the nation of Assyria after using that evil and wicked nation as an instrument to judge his very own people. Okay, you you see the scenario? He's saying, I'm going to judge this wicked and evil nation, and I am also going to use them as an instrument against my own people. Let's take a look at verse 5. Isaiah 10, 5. God says this, Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation. I dispatch him against a people who anger me to seize, loot, and snatch plunder and to trample them down like the mud in the streets. And now notice the contrast in verse 7. God's intention was to judge his people. Verse 7. But this is not what he intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose, 
is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. So in other words, God said, I'm going to use this nation to judge my people. And it's my intention that this nation be used simply to, to judge the people, to sort of teach them a lesson. But no, what is Syria's intention? Assyria and their king, their intention is to wipe off the Jewish people from the face of the map. And so you see this duality here. So let me ask you a question. In these verses, is God pictured as sovereign over the actions of the nation and the king of Assyria? What's the answer? Yes, absolutely. Notice the language. He, he, he says, Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. In other words, he says, This nation is like a club in my hand, right? He is sovereign over them. But notice, just skip ahead to verse 12. A little bit later, God says, but I'm going to judge them for it. Notice verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Syria for the willful pride. See that? For the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. Question. Is God going to hold Assyria responsible for their actions, even though God was sovereignly moving uh, in their lives? So what's the answer? Yes, absolutely. And so here is a classic example. The king of Assyria was not coerced. The, the, the king of Syria acted freely in what it did against God's people. But God says, they're like a club in my hand, right? I'm sovereign over them. So now maybe we come to what is the example par excellence, sort of the highest or maybe the best example of compatibilism, this idea that God is in control, but human beings are responsible. And uh, this example is in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles open, turn with me to the New Testament. There you uh, will get through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then you will find the book of Acts, A-C-T-S, Acts. Look with me at chapter 2. We'll begin in chapter 2, and then we'll make our way into chapter 4. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ may be sort of the best example of these two things working hand in hand. So here's a question. I want to prime the pump a little bit before we look at chapter 2 and chapter 4. Was it God's plan from eternity past to send Jesus to the earth and that he die for the sins of the world? What do you think is the answer? Yes. Yes is the answer. Here's a second question. And those that had a hand in the crucifixion of Jesus, does that mean that they were let off the hook? That they were not responsible for the actions? What do you think? No. Acts chapter 2, we'll take a look at verses 22 through 24. Here Peter is addressing the crowd of Jewish people that gathered around the apostles upon the day of Pentecost. You'll recall the story in chapter 2, tongues of fire, they speak in languages that they did not already know, and the Jews that were there for Passover were like, hey, that's, that's, my, that's my native tongue, what's going on? And so there's this crowd that has gathered, and so Peter preaches. And notice what he says um, in verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, 
which God did among you through him, as you yourself know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Does that speak of God's sovereignty? Yes, it does. Notice. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So let me ask, whose plan was it to hand Jesus over to the Jewish people? It was God's plan. It was God's plan. And yet, did they do it? Were they responsible for it? Peter points the finger at them, does he not? You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. We see in a very parallel passage in chapter 4. So turn just a few pages to the right. In Acts chapter 4, we'll take a look at verses 27 through 28. We see a very similar uh, scenario. And so the, uh, Peter and John are, um, are before the Sanhedrin, is, is, is the scenario. They're, they're before the Sanhedrin. And, um, in fact, the very, same, the very same Sanhedrin that put Jesus to death, by the way. And they're speaking. And notice what they say, starting in verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. This is a prayer that they are offering to God. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. And so, a very similar passage to what we've seen before. And so, these are just three, I think, clear examples that show us God is sovereign and people are responsible. And there is no apology. There is no apparent contradiction. The writers of the scripture don't pause and say, well, let me explain how these two things can be true. No, they just affirm that they are true. And so we must as well. So there's the biblical evidence. But let's move to our second point. And ask this question. Why is it so hard for us to fit these truths together in our mind? Because it's hard. I can't reconcile this in my mind. I'm not sure how to do that. And First and Second John can't either. So why is this? Well, um, I'm not going to be dogmatic on this point. I just want to offer this as sort of, a, I think, a, a good, solid reason. I'm inclined to go with what John MacArthur suggested earlier, and that is, and I'll quote him, what is a problem to us is not a problem to God. His mind is so much more vast than ours. And that reminds us of passages like on the screen behind me, Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55, verse, verses 8 and 9, reminds us of this. God, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so there is a, there is a sense in which we as, as a people must recognize that, you know what? God is smarter than us. He understands more than us. We are the creature. He is the creator. And there is a distinction in our ways and in our thoughts and in our understanding. And so when we come to things like we're dealing with this morning, this truth that God is sovereign and this truth that we are responsible and, and, and we can't fit these together, do you think God can fit those together? Yeah, 
Of course you can. He is God. And by the way, who is the ultimate author of Scripture anyway? Remember? All Scripture, Paul says, is what? God breathed, right? And so if God is breathing out through these Scriptures and affirming that He is in control and we are responsible, um, is He in error? If we claim that, the, that one is true and the other is not, then what are we saying about God? That He's wrong, right? I'm not willing to say that. How about you? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 29, 29 reminds us that there are things that God has not chosen to reveal or fully explain to us. Verse 29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may follow all the words of the law. Friends, may I humbly suggest that the secret, one of the secret things that belong to the Lord our God might very well be this paradox that God is sovereign and we are in control. But the things that are revealed to us and our children are those truths. He is sovereign. We are responsible. Christian thinkers throughout the ages have not only wrestled with this, but have affirmed in their thinking and their writing that though these two are hard for us to reconcile, that one day in eternity that will be made clearer. And so, uh, for example, R.B. Kuyper, he was once the president of Calvin Theological Seminary. He used this illustration to, to maybe help us understand God's sovereignty and human responsibility and our, our understanding it at some point in eternity. And so he, he, he writes this, and I quote, I liken them, these two truths, I liken them to two ropes going through two holes in the ceiling and over a pulley above. If I wish to support myself by them, I must cling to them both. If I cling only to one and not the other, I go down. He says, I read the many teachings of the Bible regarding God's election, predestination, His chosen, and so on. I read also the many teachings regarding whosoever will come and urging people to exercise their responsibility as human beings. These seeming contradictions cannot be reconciled by the puny human mind. He says, with childlike faith, I cling to both ropes, fully confident that in eternity I will see that both strands of truth are, after all, one rope. That's a pretty cool way of thinking of it. But I think he might have stolen the illustration, maybe, from another Christian thinker, the great uh, English pastor Charles Spurgeon. Because Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, said this, and I quote, that God predestines and yet that man is responsible are two facts that few can see clearly. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory, but they are not. The fault is in our weak judgment. Two truths cannot be contradictory to each other. That's a great point. It is only my fault that leads me to imagine that these two truths can ever contradict each other. I do not believe that they can be wielded into one upon an earthly anvil. In other words, we may not figure it out on earth. But they certainly shall be in eternity. They are two lines that are so neatly parallel that the human mind which pursues them farthest will never discover that they converge, but they do converge, and they will meet somewhere in eternity close to the throne of God, whence all truth doth spring. So why is it hard for us to understand this? Friends, it's because uh, his thoughts are not our thoughts. It's because his ways are not our ways. I have hope that in eternity, this will be just one of the many questions that will be answered. 
And so for the remainder of our time, I want to transition then and to think about implication. Um, is, is this just theology, right? It's just like for, for people who drink coffee all day and read the Bible and study theology textbooks. Well, no, this, this is very practical. It has implications for our life, major implications for our life. So the major takeaway, I think, for our pas- from our passages today is that we must not only affirm that God is in control and that we are responsible, but we must live in that way. And that these two sort of serve as, as boundaries for us. Um, I recall an instance, and if, if I've shared the story before and you've heard it before, my apologies, but it fits, this, the, it fits the illustration. When I was in kindergarten, I recall vividly that we had a coloring assignment. And there was a piece of paper that was put before me, and it was a picture of a, my wife knows, a duck. It was a picture of a duck, and we were to color it. And part of, I guess, the lesson was to teach us there in kindergarten to not color outside of the lines. I've always wondered why that's all that important. I've never been an inside-the-lines guy, but that's what the teacher told us to do. So I start coloring, and I try my best to stay inside the lines. And of course, do I stay inside the lines? No, of course I don't, because I'm not very good at it. And, and, and all the while, I decide that because the paper is white, and most ducks that we see, at least I had seen as a kindergartner, were, well, white, that I would color mine black, because black goes with ducks. I see my peers coloring pink, and I see my peers coloring purple. Friends, have you ever seen a pink duck? Have you ever seen a purple? Okay, here's the, here's the point. So I do this, I color outside the lines, and I color it black, and I turn it into my teacher, and God bless her, she says, go back and do it again. One, because you colored outside the lines, and two, because you colored the duck black. Um, and I, and I, I remember saying, the ducks are black, <laughs> and they're not pink and purple. I had to do it again. Friends, um, we are taught to sort of color within the lines, right? And I just want to use this as, a, as an illustration because I think that these two truths of God's sovereignty and our responsibility, they sort of serve as, as, as borders, as, as boundary, lives, uh, boundary lines for us to think through and to live by. And as long as sort of we stay within the lines, you can color pink or you can color black or you can whatever, right? Um, Pastor Tim commented on the way that these two truths apply to our lives. And he says this in one of his sermons, and I quote, What this means is that no matter how bad things get, on the one hand, God is completely in charge. And on the other hand, what you do matters. He says, what the Bible says is that what you do matters. You are responsible. At the same time, You can't completely screw up your own life because God is in charge. Isn't that great? I love that. It provides some comfort to me. And so let's think about five ways that these two truths matter. See, what we tend to do as Christians is we tend to to gravitate towards one side or the other. We tend to emphasize in our theology, in our living, the fact that God is sovereign and we belittle the fact that we are responsible. Or, in our theology and our living, we emphasize the fact that we are responsible beings, and we forget the fact that God is sovereign. And we need to affirm and live out both. So let's think about some areas. Number one is, is simply the area of taking responsibility. Because we are responsible, the Bible says, we can't shun um, taking responsibility. We can't blame others for the choices that we make. If we have decisions to make in this life... Friends, the Bible affirms that you have decisions to make and that they matter. 
They matter in this life, and they matter in eternity. And we must not be caught saying, let go and let God. I'm just going to wait. I really would like to pay my rent, and I really would like to eat. But, you know, God is sovereign, so I'm just going to sit on my couch and eat potato chips. That's not how it works, right? In fact, Martin Luther, in his trademark wit and humor... He says this. He says, If God did not bless, not one hair, not one solitary uh, wisp of straw would grow. But there would be the end of everything. He says, At the same time, God wants me to take this stance. I would have nothing whatever if I did not... I would have nothing whatever if I did not plow and sow. God does not want me to have success come without work. And yet I am not to achieve it by my own work. He does not want me to sit at home, to loaf, to commit matters to God, and here's the best part, and to wait until a fried chicken flies into my mouth. Great. I love that guy. We are responsible. The decisions that we make matter. And so we have choices to make about how we raise our kids. We have choices to make about what shows they watch and what books they read. And those decisions matter. But what about in the realm of salvation? Here's... Is a person saved because God chooses them, draws them, convicts them, and regenerates them? Or are they saved because they repented and trusted in Jesus Christ alone? Friends, the Bible's answer is yes. The Bible's answer is yes. From the standpoint of God's sovereignty, we are saved because God sovereignly chose us and prepared us. But from a human standpoint, we are saved because we receive Jesus Christ and make that decision. See, Jesus apparently didn't have a problem with these two truths like we so often do. This is worth looking at. Turn with me to John chapter 6. If you're in the book of Acts, turn, turn backwards just a little bit. You'll find the fourth gospel. There, John chapter 6, Jesus gives this wonderful dialogue. And there he affirms in the same lecture, in the same conversation, both God is sovereign over salvation and human beings are responsible. John chapter 6, I just want to point a few verses here. On the one hand, he, he speaks to the fact that human choice and responsibility has a part to play in a person's salvation. Notice, for example, verse 35. Verse 35, Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, whoever comes to me, will never go hungry. And whoever believes in, uh, in me will never be thirsty. Right? So Jesus Whoever, right? You come to me, you're not going to be thirsty. If you come to me, you're not going to be hungry. Look at verse 40. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Friends, do we have to believe in Jesus to be saved? Please say, Amen. Yeah, we must believe in Jesus to be saved. Jesus speaks of that. However, notice, for instance, verse 37. He makes strong statements about God's sovereignty and salvation. Verse 37, all those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. So Jesus says, there, there are some that the Father has given to me, like a gift, right? The Father gives them to me, and I'm not going to drive them away. Notice in verse 44 in your text, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And I will raise them up on the last day. And so here Jesus, and I can, give you, I can multiply these examples. He says, yes and yes to both. What about evangelism? You ever, you ever thought about how this intersects with 
evangelism. Friends, must God draw and convict people uh, through the Holy Spirit for their need of a Savior? Yes. Are we commanded to pray for the lost and to share the gospel with them so that they can be saved? What's the answer? Yes, right? And both are true. We see this very clearly in, in, in a word that God gave to Paul through an angel in Acts chapter 18. You can just follow on the screen behind me. There uh, we see these words. The Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. He's there in the city of Corinth. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm because I have many people in this city. So what does Paul do? So don't read the next verse, right? Cover your eyes. What does Paul do? So God says, don't be afraid. I'm with you. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. I have many people in this city. So does Paul say, hey, God's got many people in this city, so I might as well go to the next one. I don't have to do anything, right? God's got it. It's going to happen. Is that what he does? Well, let's read the next verse. He said in verse 11, So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. So very clearly, in evangelism, are we called to evangelize? Absolutely. Are you called to share the gospel with people? Absolutely. Is God sovereign over that? Absolutely. What about prayer? Ever thought about this before? Does this ever bother you at night when you maybe can't sleep because you're pondering this paradox of prayer? Let's think about it. Why should we pray if God is sovereign over all things? You ever thought about that before? Why should we pray? Why should we pray? Well, the simple answer is that because God tells us to pray. That God commands us to pray. But not only that, but for instance, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 18, Jesus says, um, God knows what you need even before you ask it. You pondered that truth? It's an amazing truth. Before we go to God in prayer, we have a need. God knows it. God knows it. So then, what what does Jesus go on to do? He says, God knows what you need, even before you pray. So then does he say, so don't pray. Don't worry about it. God knows it, right? He goes on to give us the Lord's Prayer, so that we know how to pray. You see how these two things work in tandem, right? God is sovereign. We pray. We, We seek His will, and yet we are responsible. What about spiritual growth? Have you ever thought about this? Who is responsible for your growth as a Christian. I mean, who is responsible? If you grow in your character, if you become more patient, if you become more kind, if you become more holy, if you become uh, less sinfully angry, right? These things that we want to be molded into Christ's image. Who is responsible for that? How does that happen, right? Does God just zap us and it happens? Is there a part that we have to play in this thing? Are we responsible for pursuing God, for doing disciplines like Bible reading or study or prayer or attending church and being generous with our, our, our finances to God's work or serving other people? Um, take a look with me at Philippians chapter 2 on the screen, 12. Paul says, Therefore, as he writes to the Philippians, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always, what's the word there, church? Say it. Obeyed. As you have always obeyed, not only in my prayer, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Let me ask you a question. Is our obedience a part of our sanctification? Please say yes, right? We are responsible to obey. We pursue obedience. How does that obedience work? Verse 13. 
For it is God who works in you, both to will, that is to give you the the inclination, the desire, to will and to act, to empower you to do those things, to obey, in order to fulfill his good purpose. Paul, which is it? Am I responsible for my Christian growth, or is God responsible for my Christian growth? And what's the answer? Yes. 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 And so in closing, in closing, if you are interested in further reading, I highly recommend the following book, Dr. D.A. Carson from uh, Trinity uh, up in Deerfield, Divine Sovereignty and Human Responsibility, Biblical Perspectives and Tensions. You won't go wrong. Dr. Carson is infinitely brighter and well, well-versed than me. And so if you want a better answer than the one I gave you, get the book, right? That's, that's what I recommend. Uh, we're going to pray, and then I'm going to have you stand, and we're going to read a benediction that focuses uh, our hearts and minds on God's amazing wisdom and, and, uh, and truth. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask you to... In fact, let's stand now, and then we'll pray. Let's stand. Okay, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the morning. We thank you for your word that it reveals to us truth, even when we can't reconcile things, even when we have questions, even when we don't fully understand. We humbly uh, bow before your word. It is altogether true. It demonstrates uh, the depth of your wisdom and your knowledge and your understanding and your reason. And so we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.